And uh, we are in a series right now called Timeless Truth. Today is week three. And my burden, my passion in this message series is we're kind of going through the books of the minor prophets. There are 12 of those. And really just looking at how many of the messages that God used his prophets to bring to his people that the applications that were happening then are still very relevant and necessary today. Uh, I could say it like this. Culture was going one way and attempting to pull God's people astray with it, and the prophets were coming and letting the people know that's not culture. God's kingdom and his people go a different way, and there's a warning. Don't go away from God or there are consequences come back to God, and there are blessings. Does that make sense? I mean, it's pretty foundational. That is still relevant in our preaching and teaching of the Word of God today. There are blessings that God promises us for walking in obedience and faithfulness to Him, and there are consequences that come, ultimately, the Bible says, leading to destruction if we continue down a path that is away from how God tells us to live. And so the series title, Timeless Truth, is to really just say, look, culture has changed all throughout history. Civilizations have risen and fallen. New Age philosophies have emerged and then fizzled out. But the Word of God has stood forever, is still standing, and will stand forever. It's our compass, it's our guide, and it is our ultimate authority, our plumb line to which we cling to. Amen? Amen. So, timeless truth. Today, we are going to visit the prophet Micah. Micah. And just a little bit about Micah. He married a girl named Ashley, and they have three kids. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, I was waiting all week for that. Um, but Micah prophesied to primarily to the southern region of Judah around 700 B.C. And that's important because... Historically, the backdrop that was taking place is that the northern region of Israel, again, the kingdom uh, of Israel had been split and divided after Solomon. So you had the region to the north and then the region to the south. Often it's referred to as Israel and Judah. Combined, they make up the original 12 tribes that were part of God's chosen people. But there's division there. And 700 B.C., the Assyrian Empire has already began uh, the incursion in the north, conquering those people and bringing all of their uh, ungodly influence and setting that up in the north. And Micah is coming. He was also a contemporary of Isaiah. He's coming to the region of Judah in the south, and he's basically letting them know you're headed for the same outcome. And in this particular case, for Judah, the incursion of their enemies would be the Babylonian Empire, which does occur about 100 years later, a little over 100 years after that. Does that make sense? So we're kind of in between those two things. And again, so there's time until there's not time. And Micah is trying to warn the people of Judah, 
that you're headed for the same outcome as the people in the north if you don't turn back to God. Micah is also the most famous probably for being the prophet who prophesied about the birth of the Messiah being in Bethlehem. We hear about that one a lot during our Christmas story. So that's a little bit about Micah. Let's enter into the story here in chapter 1, and we will begin with the first few verses. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moreshet in the days of Yotam, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Everybody say high places. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, mm, we seek you right now. God, we need your Holy Spirit to unveil and uncover hidden truths of your word that man cannot know apart from you. We open our eyes, our ears, our hearts to revelation knowledge today. God, we are not satisfied with worldly, temporal knowledge. We seek heavenly revelation knowledge, and we need you to bring that forth. God, I pray that you would anoint me with the Holy Ghost to be able to speak and communicate and convey your truth in ways that it will reach hungry hearts and souls today, oh God. I cannot do this apart from you, and I am well aware. We come against any distracting spirit, any foul or evil spirit. Right now, that may have lodged itself in the life of one of these wonderful people here today. God, we just, in the name of Jesus, bind any foul or evil spirit from being able to operate in this house. Deceptive spirit, religious spirit, distracting spirit. Anything, God, that's not of you, we just come against that right now in Jesus' name. And we say, bring forth the pure seed of your word that it would fall in good soil. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So, first few verses here. Micah is essentially announcing the judgment that's coming to God's people uh, for walking in waywardness. Again, throughout the book, as we'll see, there are still warnings and times to come back, but he's giving them indication of what's going to happen when God begins to release judgment on their sinful ways. He says that they have made high places all throughout the land, and God is going to come down and deal with their high places. I just love this that we see throughout the scriptures is man seems to think more of himself often than he should and props himself up by building these high places, exalts himself, 
And God says, I'm going to deal with that. But in order to deal with your high place that you've brought yourself up to, I just want you to know I actually have to come down way, way down from where I'm at on high to deal with this. God's ways are always higher than our ways, and his thoughts are always higher than our thoughts. He says that they have established all of these high places. Now, this is the part where it's already happened and it's rampant in the north because of the culmination of the Assyrian influence there. But Micah is also calling out the people in the south, in Judah, who have not yet reached the point of Babylonian incursion. And he's telling them, your high places God is going to deal with, which essentially are these places, guys, of false worship. They're places that were erected like altars and worship sites for different idols and different gods. And so while they once worshiped one true God, now they have these different high places all over their land. And the problem is, is that it's not harmless to just allow this to happen. It's actually very dangerous. And if God's people will not form an opposition and a resistance to the way culture is going with its indoctrination of false worships and false things that are not of God, I think you see where I'm going here. Ultimately, it's just a matter of time before a bunch of false temples and false teachings are erected all over the land. It's been allowed to get traction and momentum, and it's building. And I sometimes wonder, I think a lot about, again, these messages having such current application that the people of God, the body of Christ, who are really worshipers in spirit and in truth, need to understand and recognize while we always operate out of love for all people, that if we don't have an opposition to the indoctrination of false ways and teachings, Guys, it's just a matter of time before there are a bunch of false temples and practices littered all over our land as well, leading people astray. And so God really petitions the prophets when he brings the message, not only to bring warning about sinful ways, but listen, you got to see this. He compels them to speak out against false teachings and false prophets, to say these things are not okay. So it's not innocent, it's not harmless, and we don't maintain this like neutral ground because we don't want to rock the boat, because that, ends up, that never ends up helping anyone. I'm going to take you back real quick to a verse in Amos that I didn't have time to get to last week. But speaking of high places, and if you recall, the people in the north, they set up a false temple in Bethel that wasn't the true temple, and they got everybody to come worship there instead of going down to the true temple in Jerusalem. So if we were looking at that in today's context, you could say that's not really authentic and genuine Christianity. That's based on teachings that are not really in line with the ways and word of God as it commands us, okay? 
So Amos 3.14 says this, In this day I will punish Israel for their transgressions. I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So what is that all about? Horns on the altar getting broke off. Well, part of God's design for his temple and place of worship that was the genuine place he established was there was an altar and there were horns on this altar. And if people were fleeing from an enemy or an attacker from another land or a foreign place and they came to this place, they could come and they could place their hands on the horns of this altar and, and hold them, and they would plead mercy, and they would find mercy. God's people and God himself would uphold them and protect them. Does that make sense? So what's the point of him saying in Amos and talking about high places erected for false worship? He says, there's a time that's coming when I'm going to break the horns of that fake false altar right off of there. And when you try to seek other ways and alternative options to find mercy and grace and find right living, you're going to reach for it, but you're not going to find it. Because Christ alone is the only one capable of extending the kind of mercy that's needed for the forgiveness of our sinful ways says you're going to reach for the horns on that altar and they're going to be broke off. And then you're going to realize that where you put your faith and where you put that stock in is no longer going to be able to support you or hold you up. And I don't know that if we look around, it would be such a far cry and statement to say that there are even places of false worship set up in our land today. Places that have allowed indoctrination of things that are not God's ways and essentially declared that these kinds of teachings are truth and are acceptable in the eyes of God. Man essentially rewriting and recreating the narrative to suit his own conveniences. And God says, I'm only going to put up with that for so long. Are you following me? So we go over to chapter 3, and now he moves from talking about the false altars and fake places of worship, the high places, and he begins to come against the prophets and the teachers who are behind these things. And he says, woe to you who lead the people astray, and listen to this, who chant peace, who chant peace. And he makes a hard case about this. I'm going to show you another verse in a second. But this same kind of pattern was in Amos as well, and it's in other places too. But he says, woe to you who chant peace. So there are all these false prophets who are operating out of these false temples, and they're giving false words of encouragement to a wayward and sinful people. 
and they're chanting peace. This is essentially what they're saying, guys, and I want you to think about this in the context of today and how culture is trying to push the church to embrace and accept things that are not of God. These false messages are basically saying, chanting peace, everything is okay, everything is going to be fine, we can keep doing what we're doing, and it's all going to be all right. All right. Except that it's not going to be all right. It's not going to be fine. It's not going to be okay. So you tell me, who are we doing any good if we're declaring things like this? It's all okay. It's all going to be fine. When God says, if you keep going down that road, it's not going to be fine for you, actually. And there's a day coming when they're going to realize that for themselves. Mm. Uh, Let's go to chapter 2. Verse 10, it says, Arise and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is defiled, it shall destroy. Yes, with utter destruction. If a man should walk in a false spirit, did you hear that? False spirit, and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink, Even he would be the prattler of this people. Now, I want to read this to you in a different translation and just to get more effect of this verse. But he's basically calling out the false teachings, but he's also calling out the people for allowing and welcoming that and actually being having their ears tickled by that. If you remember, Paul said to Timothy that there's going to come a day when the people will resist truth and they'll heap up for themselves different teachers to satisfy their itching ears. It's exactly what they're doing here. It's what Paul said to Timothy is going to happen in the end. And it's, it's in between that all throughout time and God speaking a message to his people. We can't be okay with that. So in the message version of that ver- scripture, it says this. Get out of here, the lot of you. You can't take it easy here. You've polluted this place, and now you're polluted, ruined. If someone showed up with a good smile and glib tongue and told lies from morning to night, I'll preach sermons and I'll tell you of how you can get anything you want from God, more money, the best wines, you name it, you'd hire him on the spot as your preacher. (laughs) Wow. So what I see in this is that people called by God to preach and teach the word and to operate in offices of, in the body of Christ uh, of leading God's people are very much accountable, very much accountable. In fact, I've learned this over the years. I'm actually accountable for speaking what God says, but I'm actually not accountable for how people receive it and respond to it. Now, I want my delivery to be good, not you know, all that, but you get what I'm saying, right? You're not responsible for the person giving the message, but you are responsible for how you respond to the message. Does that make sense? And also, God's people are responsible for recognizing when there is truth and when there is false teaching and actually resisting that and doing something about it, not letting their ears be tickled and satisfied by those kinds of things. So when prophets like Micah bring a convicting message, it is not to be easily dismissed or turned aside. He says, if this is allowed to 
as this continues to go on, he says that these false teachers in these false places of worship will come along, but there will be no answers from God. Hmm. Remember last week we talked about being cut off from Revelation in the famine of the word? He says, there will be no answers from God. Meaning, you can, you can set up the building and you can go and act like we're playing church and playing worship all day long. But if the teaching isn't true to the word of God, God's presence will be there and there won't be any revelation to which people are operating, operating by out of there. Hmm. And we are a people who live by revelation. We need the power of the Holy Spirit flowing in, the anointing of the Holy Spirit flowing into our churches, anointing the teachings and anointing the lives of God's people flowing out into their lives and into the community. And he's saying, that's not going to happen in false places of worship. It's dry. It's only operating off of human knowledge and human ability. But we have the invitation to be a people who live out of supernatural revelation and anointing that is meant to flow into healthy houses, standing firm on the word of God and people who are embracing truth and allowing it to transform their lives and how they live in obedience and faithfulness to God. And then that anointing flows in and through their lives and out into the things that God is using them and calling them to do. Micah says this in verse 8, chapter 3. He says, Truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So he's, he's just basically saying, The Spirit of God is upon me. God has called me to preach and and prophesy these words to you, but I'm not coming in my own authority. I'm coming to you in God's authority. It's not my message. It's his message. And if you'll receive it, the same spirit that's anointing me to give it to you is the same spirit you can operate with under anointing in your own life to be blessed to do all that God is calling you to do. I would have thought I would have got a big amen on that one right there, but that's all right. It's okay. Um, all right, so enough about the false temples and the false teachers. Let's jump over to chapter 2, verse 12. Actually, back here real quick. And listen to this. He says, I will surely, God's speaking this through him, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. Hmm. I love this. So, I encourage you, while we're in this series, to read all of the books of the Minor Prophets. They're not real long. You could, you could do that easily. Start with Hosea, go all the way to Malachi, read them all, okay? If you read all of Micah, then you'll see that, yes, there are warnings. Judgment is predicted. It ends up happening because they actually never really fully turn back. 
Time is given, but in the invitation to come back, he also speaks about the blessings and promises that are going to come to them if they do. So you got to understand, this is, this is the accuracy of the message, is that yes, there is judgment, and yes, there is warning, but there is also hope and re- for repentance. There is hope and blessing and forgiveness for those who do. And he's saying right here that even when judgment comes, even when God begins to release and commence something because he is no longer going to tolerate the wickedness and wicked ways, He says, but even in the midst of that, I will gather my remnant, the remnant of my people, and I will make them like a flock and a fold that are that are uh, grazing in healthy pasture. So I want to really bring this one out today. In Joel, I really brought out the valley of decision. In Amos, I tried to really bring out the plumb line. There are many overarching themes that we could discuss and pillars and all these. But in Micah today, I really want to bring out this concept of the remnant, the remnant of God's people. Because if you understand it, what it is and what the promise is, then it's very encouraging to every single believer in the body of Christ who is worshiping in spirit and in truth. Because what is a remnant? A remnant is a residue or a remainder of something that's left after a larger portion has been sifted out. You could say in this context that it is, it is the people who were truly worshiping God and committed to Him in spirit and in truth among a very large group of people who were all proclaimed worshipers obeying God. And the sifting happens and occurs through judgment and the release of God bringing justice over the land. And when that happens, those who refuse to repent and rebel are are pulled aside and judgment is released on them. But the ones who are committed to God or who have repented from the warnings and got right with God... Church, you got to hear this. They are the remnant who are protected and preserved and upheld that God always makes a way through for, even in the time of great adversity and affliction that are a result of sinfulness in the land. So I could say it this way. When God is releasing judgment and there are True believers and false believers and all kinds of rebellious people, when God is releasing that, it is poured out and it is poured out around the remnant, but it is not poured on the remnant. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament that we've escaped the wrath of Christ that will come in the final judgment because His blood has atoned for our sin. But there will be believers on the face of the earth during the seven-year tribulation who experience great suffering, but when the bowls of judgment are being poured out, they're being poured around, but not on His people that are marked by His name on their heads. 
So it's a promise of protection and of perseverance, and it's also a promise to strengthen those who stay committed to truth so that they can endure through the suffering and adversity that may be happening around them. We're never promised that it's always going to be easy, and we're never promised that God might not deal with a people or a nation around us because of wickedness, but if we hold our ground and hold the plumb line, then we are promised that God will protect and preserve and strengthen us that we may endure. Mm, That's good news. That's really good news. And not only do we just endure... Like, oh, barely made it through. No, actually, the church, in fact, all through history, and the consummation of this happens in the return of Christ as the church ushers into the eternal era. But all throughout time, the church or God's people that have endured through affliction and adversity as a result of judgment actually emerge stronger and more resolved on the other side than they were even before they went into the suffering and adversity. Wow. And, and maybe you've experienced something like that before. You've been through a really hard time or season in your life really difficult things, and you might say about that time or that situation as you look back, I would never want to go through it again, but I actually wouldn't trade it because of what I learned from it and how it helped me. Can anybody testify to that? Guys, that's the promise for the remnant if we stay true to his word even through the suffering and adversity that may happen. Mm. Everybody say remnant. And I want to show you one more place where this principle, because it's just so encouraging to me to hear this, right? Where this principle of God protecting and preserving his true people, even during judgment, happens. And that is in Egypt, when God is bringing all of the plagues. You remember that story, right? Moses comes to Egypt to... Tell Pharaoh, release my people. He's stiff-necked. He's hardened and hard-hearted. He refuses to hear. He refuses to listen. And what does he do? He invites the release of judgment through plagues upon himself and all the people who are following him. But for the people of God who are present in the landscape. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But the people of God who are around the whole area when these plagues are being released, they are mostly residing in a land right next to Israel that is the Bible calls Goshen. And in the land of Goshen, when everything is being poured out over Egypt and over the broad area, The people of Goshen, God's people, remain unharmed and untouched by the results of all of these things being poured out. Now, they could certainly step back and look around and say, yeah, I see it, and it's bad. Yeah, it's affecting things all around me. Life is definitely different and affected because this is happening But in the midst of me staying true to God, I am not being afflicted by these plagues on myself or my family like those around me who are not choosing to follow God and listen to Him. 
Let me just quickly read through some of these verses because I think they'll encourage your spirit. I hope they do. Exodus 8, 22. This is the fourth plague of the flies. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. Chapter 9, verse 6, the fifth plague, the disease of livestock. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. 9.25, the seventh plague of hail. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt. All that was in the field, man and beast, hail struck every one of them. Herb of the field broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. I wonder how God did it. Did he like separate it in the air and it just went around them? I don't know. It was certainly miraculous though, but it was God upholding his people during the time of pouring out the plagues. Chapter 10, the ninth plague, darkness. You're going to love this one. Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all of the land of Egypt for three days. They couldn't even see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Total darkness. All their cell phone batteries died. They couldn't turn their flashlights on or anything. But all of the children of Israel had light in their... Oh, I don't even have time to preach on this. Oh, When there's darkness covering a land, people who stay true to God will always operate in the light. They will not be affected by the darkness. They will be light bearers and light carriers. And let me say this, and then we'll move on, that when people who are trapped in darkness genuinely and truly want out and here are the warnings guess where they're going they're looking for lighthouses and people carrying light and then the last plague of course was the was the death of the firstborn that was the 10th and final plague and we know that all of the firstborn of Egypt both male and beast were taken by the spirit of death that night because they refused to listen to God and continued in rebellion. And then the people of Israel who were covered by the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, it says the spirit of death passed over them. This is another picture of Goshen. This is another picture of preservation of the remnant. God passes over with the judgment. He passes over his people and preserves them and protects them even whenever it's being poured out over the land. I just think that we need to hear this to be encouraged and know that, yeah, there may be a lot of things in culture that are taking the world in different, a different direction than kingdom, and we're doing what we can to stand firm and true. We know in the end, God wins this thing after all, but if times get tough and they get hard and the church knows suffering and persecution at a level it's never seen before, I just want you to know you're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay. It may not be easy, but there's a promise for you that you can hang on to even through the difficulty. Amen. Amen. 
All right, let's jump over to chapter 4. And now we see some of the promises coming for those who repent. And there's a lot of end-time implication in this, but also you can see this in operation and partial fulfillment in the church today. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. There you go, light bearers. They're coming to find light. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here again you see pure water and truth flowing in to places that will embrace and stand for it, and then it's flowing out of there into the rest of the land around them. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall lift up shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It speaks about a time of peace during the millennial reign of Christ and the saints. And verse 4, But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one, I say again, no one shall make them afraid. Hmm. So church, I'm, I, I feel like I'm just kind of on this mission right now. And I can't get away from it. To strengthen the body of Christ right now in the times of opposition that we face from culture. And the promise to God's people is if you stay true to his word and you continue to worship him in spirit and truth and you'll follow his ways no matter what. He says, you will always operate from a place of rest you'll have rest for your soul. And the world does not know that rest. It's chaos, anxiety and panic attacks everywhere. Medication is diagnoses and and solutions for everything. I, I know it's real, but I'm just saying, God says, you live with me, you can live in rest, peace for your soul. And he says, and also, while you're resting under that fig tree of my canopy of covering, provision, protection, No one can make you afraid. I want you to think about this for just a second. Because the tactics of the enemy have always been this way. And it's it's working, I think, through culture today. Is to try to bully and intimidate the people of God. That if they stand up for truth or resist it, It's just not worth the attacks that they're going to face. Am I making sense? To bully and intimidate. We just need to accept. We just need to be okay with everything. If you're not, you're intolerant, and we're going to get you for that. We're going to string you up on the flagpole if you're a bigot, and if you refuse to be accepting of everything that culture defines as morality now. God says, you can't do that. (laughs) Got to hold the plumb line. But if you do, there's a strength that will come to you that you cannot access another way. 
that will allow you to stand firm and stand strong and never be afraid of that intimidation or that bullying that tries to get you to be silent whenever all of the high places are being set up around you. We just can't be. Jesus said it this way. Don't fear man who can destroy the body in death. He said, fear God who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Hmm. I just think that puts it pretty clear. I need to be right with what he has to say. I'm not too worried about what culture has to say. But we're all getting put more and more. It, it, it should not surprise you. You need to see it coming. If you feel like you've been kind of in the background, staying away from it up to now, I, I just don't think that's going to continue. I think the people who are truly standing firm on Christian values in the Word of God are more and more going to be put on the hot seat for their faith and put in a situation where they either have to stand up or lay down. And the more influence that we say we want and that we pray for God to give us, I can guarantee you the more influence you're going to get, the more it's going to be required of you to stand strong in the face of this bullying and in these attacks and intimidation. To much who's given, much is required. If we think we're ready for more in the kingdom, then we need to know we've got to be prepared to endure when the attacks come against us for our faith. There was a story of a hockey player very recently. If you follow hockey, you may have heard this. A Philadelphia Flyers player by the name of Ivan uh, Provorov, I believe is how you say that. Uh, And there was a particular night that his team wanted to honor the LGBTQ agenda, and they required all the players of their team to wear the LGBTQ uh, badge embroidered onto their jersey that night. And Ivan Provorov refused to do it. He said, I will, you know, and listen, here's what you got to understand. He was not going around spewing hate speech. Uh, He wasn't, you know, posting all these people are going to hell. And, you know, he wasn't going around saying all these things and trying to, to bring attacks against people. He was just doing... What God's using him to do, just using his gifts and, and trying to be an influencer on a platform. And, he is re- and then he's put in a situation where now he has to make a choice. Probably didn't think about that at the beginning of the season. And now he has to make a choice. Will I wear the badge or will I refuse and risk my career? He refused. And he took all kinds of flack for it. There were people who were posting and writing articles. He needs to be deported back to Russia. He needs to lose his NHL contract. They need to reprimand him. They need to bench him. They need to cut him from the team. I mean, you name it. It was everything you can imagine. Just because he said, I cannot wear that and associate myself with that as if I'm condoning it and saying that it's okay and acceptable. 
This is just a storyline. This is just an example. There's probably countless numbers of these kinds of things happening in small offices and businesses and workplaces and schools and community centers all over our land. I commend those who are standing strong, and I say to us, church, get your footing and be ready because you too will face days of adversity ahead. But God says for the remnant, you should fear no man. Fear no man and be strong through that. And then I'd also just point this. When, when that's happening and people like Ivan are standing strong, we need to get to the gates and hold up their arms. We need to come alongside of brothers and sisters who are under attack Instead of standing back as if we're going to avoid the shrapnel, ooh, I praise God for you, brother, uh, I'm not getting in on that. I think we need to be ready to come to the aid and stand alongside and hold up the arms of our brothers and sisters who in love are really forming the right opposition against the pressures of culture. Because they're trying to push it hard. It has momentum now. It has traction now. It's not just this thing in the distance that you kind of hear about. It's got mainstream traction now. And the church of God needs to wake up and see, no, we can hold that back. We can stand for truth, but we cannot be silent and expect that to happen. There is accountability for that. Mm. He says, Micah says to the people, because he's telling them that, you know, eventually this is going to happen. And he says, ultimately, you're going to go into Babylon. Ultimately, you're going to be taken away. And so you just, you try to wrap your mind around like 100 years worth of message, prophecy, warning now, 100 years it's going to happen. And it's a lot to take in, right? But he says, it's going to happen. You're going to go to Babylon. But this is very interesting. He says, But then after you're in Babylon, and others prophesied it would be 70 years, he said, after you're in Babylon, then God's going to restore you and bring you back, the remnant. So I just want you to think about this for a second. That sometimes the enemies of God's people were actually allowed by God to bring pressures upon them in the physical sense so that God could use that as a way to bring them back to himself. And the things that God allows by way of judgment that actually bring us closer to him are way better than the final judgment that will come to the rebellious who will actually be separated from him for all of eternity. But it's interesting to me, and you see this throughout Scripture, that these are enemies of God's people who eventually God judges and deals with them, just like he will at the end times, all the rebellious spirits. But they're allowed for a time to bring pressures against God's people. Why? To try to help them wake up and see while there's still time that they need to get back to walking right with him. And if they do, God brings them back to the land and restores them in a better place than they were even before they went into that land. Hmm. And so 
I can't help but wonder sometimes if the pressures of culture, we're losing more religious freedoms, we're losing more religious freedoms, God's already out of schools now, he's, and he's out of government, and he's out of more places, and if it's like we're seeing these things happen, as if the enemy is winning, I just wonder if God isn't allowing some things to take place, church, so that the people who are just drifting along aimlessly thinking everything is okay might actually wake up and realize, even if they have to get close to Babylon, hey, it's not okay. You need to wake up and see that it's time to get back to walking true to how God tells us to be. Amen? Uh, uh, chapter 6 Verse 8, he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So the whole key to being a part of God's remnant and a part of his promises, right, is to walk humbly with God. We maintain intimacy through humility. And one of the greatest ways that humility expresses itself is a, is a man or woman who is sensitive to the Holy Spirit of conviction and is quickly willing to repent of wrongful ways to be forgiven and made right with God and walk, see it in the land and recognize it. But the first thing we need to do is to be quick, abrupt, and sudden to recognize it when it's at our own doorstep. And guys, through the same grace that forgives us and washes us clean of sins we've committed, the same grace is available to us. Paul speaks about this in Romans to empower us to actually reign over sins of the flesh and rule over sinful ways in our lives. Say it this way, we need to run sin out of our lives every time it shows its face at our doorstep. Not associate with it. Last verse, chapter 7, verse 18. He says, this is the, you know, the picture of restoration, forgiveness, and uh, reinstated blessing to those who have repented and come back to God. He says, who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Maybe somebody needs to hear that today that Father God, he delights in mercy. He does not delight in punishment. He's just and so he's consistent with sin and how he handles it. But God delights in mercy Another prophet says he rejoices over the remnant who have come back to him. Wow, that's the posture of the Father towards us, is to get us back into his presence and under his blessing. Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Wow. So Micah uses word pictures 
to show us how God removes our sin from us when we repent. It's not part, you ever get a stain on your shirt and you mostly get it out? And then you look in the mirror and you're like, it's, it's still a little there. And only you can see it, right? But you know it's there. So when God deals with our sin, he gets it all out. It's pure white. It's washed clean. Another verse says it's as far as the east is from the west. Parts of the Bible say we're washed white as snow. Micah says your sins are removed from you. And they are thrown into the depths of the sea and they sank into the very bottoms of the deepest places in the earth, never to be found again. <laughs> That's how God is so good to us. And what he if, he, if he's willing to do that with our sin, I just wonder sometimes, and I, I mean, I know I've been there, but how it could be so hard to be willing to repent, to be so stubborn sometimes and hard-headed that we're refusing to acknowledge that we've allowed something in our lives, whenever God says the way he deals with it is to remove it and throw it to the bottom of the sea so that it's there no more. And he says to him, the prophet says, who is like you, O God? Who is like you? Who else could do this? Who could pardon iniquity? Who could remove the, the stain of sin that mankind is born into the world with? Broken man has no solution for his own brokenness. Yet, through high places, we try to solve and answer such things. <laughs> he says, God, you alone are capable of doing such things. And this is very important, and I'll close with this. As he is acknowledging the singularity of the gospel message. That there is one alone who can save. There is one alone who can forgive sin. I don't care what the philosophies of the day are. I don't care what the culture says. I don't care what the brilliant things of breakthrough that we're finding and forms of transhumanism to try to exalt the species to elite statuses to where now we are capable of bringing ourselves to improved places through science and technology. These are all things that are happening. I'm telling you, the Word of God stands forever, and it says there is one alone, always has been, always will be who is capable of forgiving sin and making us clean. And the singularity of the gospel message in itself is bringing persecution and attack from culture against people who are trying to live the Christian life. You need to be accepting. You need to be tolerant. You need to be willing to embrace all truth. We can all agree that there are different ways that we believe and think. This is part of what the pressure that comes against our And as Christians, it's not that we're being hateful. It's just that we're saying, Scripture does not permit me to authorize another way of forgiveness of sin and into the eternal kingdom. There is one and one alone who has the ability to do that. And if we depart from the singularity of the gospel message, then we are beginning to water it down and start setting up false temples and high places that are only going to lead people to stray in our day. Oh, it's the singularity of the gospel message where our feet remain grounded. Amen? Amen. And in the end, guys, 
You know, if, if you know the way this story ends, if you've read your Bible, then you know this. But there's time for people to believe now. If they're perishing, if they've rejected the message, and they're still living, there's time for them to believe now. But eventually, there's a day that comes where every single part of creation, those above the earth, angelic beings, those on the earth, still alive when Christ returns, and those under the earth, all demonic spirits and rebellious spirits who've already departed to hell. He says there's a coming time where every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess. So I guess I'm just trying to say there's time to believe now, but there's a day when everyone will believe. It will not be hidden from anyone. But the challenge with that is, is that the eternal outcome for those who refuse to embrace the message of Christ is not a good one. It says that in, in the lake of fire, in eternal damnation, that there is constant weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I've studied and prayed and thought about this a whole lot over the years. And I really do believe this. That the constant weeping, you know, heaven has no tears. Tears never stop flowing in hell. I think the constant weeping certainly speaks to the agony, the torture, the pain that we can't even comprehend. The worst thing in this world would not even comprehend to. I think the constant tears does speak to that. But even more than the pain and the torture, I think the constant tears of those who rejected Christ is because of eternal regret. They see what they rejected and there's regret for all of eternity. So once again, I'll close with this. As I've said the last few weeks, there's time until there's not time.